Welcome to the Bard and Bible, a conversational devotional about scripture, life, and ministry from the perspective of a tabletop missionary still trying to figure out what those words actually mean when you string them together. There's a seat by the fire over there, and it looks like things are just about to get started. Tonight's tale, Shaped Against the Wind. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome. Please, please come inside. It is rather blustery out there, isn't it? There's there's no reason to stay in weather like that. So please, come on. There we are. Now then, my name is Mike Perna, your resident dwarf bard, and it is my joy to welcome you to the Barden Bible. Now, normally I try to give that welcome as a bit of courtesy, but if you take note of my sign, particularly how this unseasonably powerful western gale has worn down my once illustrious relief to more of a suggestion, you'll understand why it's of particular importance these days. In other news, Her Majesty's Merchant Fleet has arrived a full week ahead of schedule, so rare delicacies from East Fralia are on hand as you desire. Do you take the good with the bad? I fell in love with the writing of Neil Gaiman because I started reading a book that he wrote with another author that I had previous experience with, Terry Pratchett. The book was called Good Omens, and particularly the reason I picked up that book, other than the fact that I had already loved Terry Pratchett, is the fact that on the back cover of the copy of the book that I got, there was, I can't remember who the reviewer was, but it was a snippet of a, re- of a review that said that Good Omens was the Book of Revelation as told by Monty Python. I I did not need to be sold any more than that quote to realize that I needed to read this book. And read it, I did. I read it a lot, actually. I, in fact, wore down that copy. I don't have it anymore because it fell apart. I also ended up going to my local bookstore and my local library and my local anybody who would give me a book ever and started collecting as much Gaiman as I could, starting with the book that I guess you could say technically and I guess even fittingly thematic-wise opened the door to everything that, that Gaiman does, which is a book called Neverwhere, and I'm sure that I will reference that at some other point if I haven't already. Now, I, I I continually say that Neil Gaiman is my favorite living author, and I honestly and truly believe that. Uh, not only because he's very talented at what he does, but also the fact that I can't think of a genre that he doesn't touch. Uh, I adore Sandman, for instance, which is just one of the different graphic novels that he's done. Uh, I absolutely am blown away by the poetry that he's created. Uh, of, of all the different ones that I've heard, I think my favorite is The Day the Saucers Came. Check that one out. It's probably available. A reading that he's done is available somewhere. Listen to it. He has redone Norse mythology in, in a literary format. He has written a children's book that I will read to my son over and over and over again called Instructions. It is a book about instructions that you give to somebody as they begin their adventure and eventually come home. I will continue to read it again 
until the binding snaps because I, I want him to know those words. So when I tell you that of all the different game and books that I've read, of all the different experiences of this man's work that I have participated in, American Gods is my favorite, and in fact, probably is one of my favorite works of fiction ever, that's going to tell you something. And I feel as I continue with this, and as I kind of frame the particular aspect of faith and belief, and especially as I do so from the Christian perspective, I need you to know a little bit of a caveat. See, when I mention American gods in Christian circles, there's usually one of two reactions. There is a quiet, reserved exuberance that says, oh my gosh, I can't believe somebody who actually believes in God is, is loving this as much as I do because I believe in God and I love this book and please next, let's spend the next four hours discussing how awesome these things are. Or there's the other one, which looks at me with concern, wondering how I could possibly love the God of the Bible and this book at the same time. See, of course there's going to be some contradictions. This is a book about a pantheon of mythological creatures and gods. This is a book saying that avatars of these gods are created by people who travel to America, becoming the American version of that god. Of course it's not going to be something that celebrates the god that I... I believe in, that I love, and that I serve. Of course it doesn't. Even though there is a very interesting chapter that brings Jesus into it if you bring in the author's preferred version, but we're not going to do that. Uh, I, I love this book, and in spite of all that stuff, if you're willing to overlook some graphic violence and sex and naughty words, it's worth your time if only to experience a really interesting retelling, not only of these old mythological beings, but also in the foundation of this country that I live in, and probably a lot of people listening to me right now live in, or if you don't live here, you're at least experiencing the ripples of what happens here. But I'm going to do something a little bit different because I want to read a large portion of text. Now, I try very hard because of the conversational nature of this conversational devotional, which, you know, you heard me say at the beginning here. I try not to do large block texts at all. And even when I do do quotes, it's usually about the Bible because we're sitting in the Barden Bible here. And so clearly that if there's going to be something quoted, it should be that. And we will get there. We will quote Bible significantly. But I want to read this one particular section of American Gods. And I want to read it because I can't do what this does. I can't speak the words that this does any better than it does. I cannot summarize it in a way that will communicate the beautiful, awkward, wonderfulness of this text. And I want you to experience it. Whether you ever read American Gods or not, I want you to experience this section. 
not only because it will be informative to what I'm going to talk about, but also because sometimes words just need to be experienced. And you're not going to like all of them. Whether you're listening to me as a devout Christian, as a questioning Christian, or not a Christian at all, but just happens to like me. You're not going to like all of this. But you don't have to. I'm going to ask you to just listen to these words. If you if you are an American Gods fan, gear up, because I'm going to read the I Believe monologue, at least that's what it's called by a lot of people who reference it, from Sam Blackcrow, as she says this to Shadow. So, if you will indulge me. I can believe that things are true, and I can believe the things that aren't true, and I can believe things where nobody knows if they're true or not. I can believe in Santa Claus, and the Easter Bunny, and Marilyn Monroe, and the Beatles, and Elvis, and Mr. Ed. Listen, I believe that people are perfectible, that knowledge is infinite, that the world is run by secret banking cartels and is visited by aliens on a regular basis. Nice ones that look like wrinkly lemurs, and bad ones who mutilate cattle, want our water and our women. I believe that the future sucks, and I believe that the future rocks. I believe that one day White Buffalo Woman is going to come back and kick everyone's ass. I believe that all men are just overgrown boys with deep problems communicating, and that the decline in good sex in America is coincident with the decline in drive-in movie theaters from state to state. I believe that all politicians are unprincipled crooks, and I still believe that they are better than the alternative. I believe that California is going to sink into the sea when the big one comes, while Florida is going to dissolve into madness and alligators and toxic waste. I believe that antibacterial soap is destroying our resistance to dirt and disease so that one day we'll all be wiped out by the common cold like the Martians in the War of the Worlds. I believe that the greatest poets of the last century were Edith Sitwell and Don Marquis. That jade is dried dragon sperm, and that thousands of years ago, in a former life, I was a one-armed Siberian shaman. I believe that mankind's destiny lies in the stars. I believe that candy really did taste better when I was a kid. That it's aerodynamically impossible for a bumblebee to fly. That light is a wave and a particle. That there's a cat in a box somewhere who's alive and dead at the same time. Although, if they don't ever open the box to feed it, it'll eventually just be two different kinds of dead. And there's stars in the universe billions of years older than the universe itself. I believe in a personal God who cares about me and worries and oversees everything I do. I believe in an impersonal God who set the universe in motion and went off to hang with her girlfriends and doesn't even know that I'm alive. I believe in an empty and godless universe of casual chaos, background noise, and sheer blind luck. I believe that anyone who says that sex is overrated just hasn't done it properly. I believe that anyone claims to know what's going on will lie about the little things too. I believe in absolute honesty and sensible social lies. I believe in a woman's right to choose, a baby's right to live, that while all human life is sacred, there's nothing wrong with the death penalty if you can trust the legal system implicitly, and that no one but a moron would ever trust the legal system. I believe life is a game, that life is a cruel joke, and that life is what happens when you're alive, and that you might as well lie back and enjoy it. Man, I love that. Okay, so getting back on things. 
I love everything about this section, and it at the same time frustrates me to no end. Because what this book often says, and what these characters experience, and what so many people every day express, whether they understand what they're saying or not, is that oftentimes we want to put the value on the act of faith itself, on the act of believing rather than the object of the belief. And there is an inherent weakness in that understanding of faith. Because if you're putting your faith in anything then you're going to be putting your faith in things that don't deserve it. That is demonstrated constantly throughout the narrative of American gods because characters will put their faith in other people. They will put their faith in the old gods. They'll put their faith in the new gods, whether they're doing that consciously or not. And in every one of these cases in this book, not only is that faith not beneficial to the person, that faith is actively betrayed by the person who they are putting their faith in. Now, if you're new to Barden Bible, you might take what I just said and craft in your own mind a narrative for the rest of this episode that I will then build a case if this is what faith shouldn't look like, or this is what a frustrating faith looks like, that I'm going to give you the idea of what a faith should look like, that it should be strong and it should be able to stand against the wind because I put wind in the title and it should be something that, you know, is only put in God because God is the only one who will not betray, who will not disappoint, that that a faith in God is what true faith looks like. And you know what? All that's true. But that's not what we do here. Those of you who aren't new to Barden Bible understand that I don't bring to the table what you've already had brought, like, 18 times by different people before me. Now, I'm here to tell you that I actually really like this as a concept of faith in the God of the Bible. However, I think it gets things wrong in places, you know, here and there. But we're going to follow that up with an actual Bible story that I think does what I like about Sam's monologue here and does it better. Or, to be more accurately, does it more accurately. What I really like about Sam as a character is that Sam just kind of rolls through life and allows what she sees and hears, what she reads, what she, you know, experiences on a daily basis to kind of just inform how she sees the world. I like that. I like that, that she is one of the truly independent characters in this novel, and there really aren't that many. Uh, I like the fact that she is able to take in this stuff and not see things that contradict her, or things that even, not even just straight contradiction, but even just disagree with her. She doesn't see them as enemies to be put down, or things to be dismissed out of hand. She takes them in. She evaluates them. She kind of rolls them over and sees what she can do with them. Now, the problem that I think in what Sam does is not that she changes, but that she changes so vehemently that she's willing to completely believe absolutely opposite things just because it kind of fits her. What I like is that concept of change, but I want to use a different word. I want to use the word malleable. I believe that Sam has a malleable faith. Because 
while she takes it too far, malleability is not completely changing on a dime. Malleability is a change of form, not substance. To use a slightly antiquated kind of illustration that would fit very well in the Barden Bible, when a blacksmith takes hammer to metal, they make something. They make, well, let's just have fun with it, they make a sword. Or to be more practical, they make something like a horseshoe. And they take this lump of metal and change it into that thing. That's a change. But it's still metal. The form has changed, its function has changed, but at the substance of it, it's still metal. And I think that is basically what I want to see here as something that's valuable. Whereas Sam takes it too far, if we dial it back a couple notches to that place where the substance remains, where the thing we have our faith in remains, but maybe the form that that faith takes might shift a little. That we're willing to, to take in the different things that we see and the different things we experience and allow that to roll around in our faith and see what it does. Because I've said it before, and I will continue to say it, ten years ago, Mike believed differently than I do right now. And Mike from ten years from now will also believe things drastically differently than I do right now. This is especially true because I'm now a dad, and if you think that my kid won't have an impact on the way I see the Bible, the way I see faith, the way I see God... You've never even been around a kid, let alone had one. So, yeah, it's going to impact that that I'm going to be affected by things. And, you know, as a guy who is still, you know, having his faith worked out constantly, I, I'm not there. I have things I need to learn. There are things that will change. That's malleability. It comes from being able to listen and to, to hear what other people say, and to take in what I see with my eyes literally right in front of me, and rather than say, that contradicts the Bible, and thus I will throw it out of hand, I, I look at it and say, how does the Bible speak to this? I will say, this is clearly a thing in front of me. How does the Bible speak to this? How does God speak to this. And I think that is an aspect of, of this kind of concept that I think we do need to see. But as I, I told you before, I promised you that I would come up with a biblical story that takes kind of the concept that I got from this monologue of fiction and brings it more into the realm of faith. Okay, I'm going to open up the book of John, right at the beginning of the book of John. Uh, at the tail end of the first chapter, verses 43 to 51, you have the story of Nathaniel. And, well, I already kind of threw open the doors on quoting large blocks of text already, so let's just have at it. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The thing I love about Nathaniel, and Nathaniel is not a name you hear a lot. Nathaniel is somebody that kind of just is part of the entourage that is around Jesus all the time. Uh, the thing I love about Nathaniel is, is that that line that he gives, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, we love that line. We, we throw that story around all the time. Like, oh yeah, you know, can't believe those preconceived notions. But the thing I love about Nathaniel is that he really does, when confronted with Jesus, he, he throws out so much of what he believes his, his preconceived notions. Like, there's a reason we tell that story all the time because it's so cool. Like, he sees Jesus and he's willing to change so much of what he understood truth to be, what he understood life to look like. And he said, no, this is, this is who I'm looking for. This is somebody who's worthy of my faith. But here's the difference. Here's the reason why I think Nathaniel's change of faith is something that we see as a positive, whereas Sam Blackcrow is a little bit on the weaker end of the spectrum. Because Jesus looks at Nathaniel and says, basically, you believed in me because I did a parlor trick? That little I saw you under the fig tree was impressive to you? Man, do I have things I'm going to show you. Jesus basically says to Nathaniel, I'm going to prove to you that the faith that you just put in me is warranted. That the belief that you have that I am this promised Messiah is 100% accurate. He literally says he's going to open up heaven. And he did. With his death and resurrection, heaven was an actual thing that we could obtain. That life eternal in the new earth is something that we can actually be a part of. That we are adopted into the family of God. That we are forgiven our sins. These are all things that were accomplished. This is what Jesus was saying when Nathaniel looked at him and said, You are the, the, the promised Christ. And he said, You believe in me because of a parlor trick? Son, I've got so many things to show you. And so I want a faith that is changing, not changing the way it is for Sam Blackcrow in American Gods, who just jumps from thing to thing as it suits her and as it fits her and, and as she finds herself in that place. No, I want a faith that changes because I'm confronted with Jesus, the Christ, the son of the ever living God. I want a faith that changes because it be, it, it's me being that much closer to him than I was yesterday. I want to be confronted with different ideas and to evaluate them and then to take them in when they bring me closer to Jesus. I want to see the Bible as a lens from which I view this world 
and it shows me God. I want that kind of change. I want to be a sword. I want to be a horseshoe. I want to be something whose form changes to fit its function, but whose substance always remains the same. I love American Gods. I love it as a story. I love its characters. I love the way it weaves the narrative of, of faith and what it's supposed to look like versus what it does look like about how uh, the things we believe in have power, how they shape us. I love all of that. But at the end of the day, that's a, a work of fiction. I believe wholeheartedly in the God that saved me. And you might listen to this and say, it's the same difference. You have that right. You have that ability. But I'm going to tell you that I have seen more evidence and allowed it to change me. And I look forward to the next however many years I've got to let new things and new pieces of information shape and mold me to be that much more like the object of my faith than I was the day before. Maybe you will too. That's part of what being a dwarf bard is. And we'll continue to look through that next time we get together here at the Barden Bible.